Check, check. Sounds good. All right. Gray Rock Realty Podcast. We have Amber Kwan in the studio. This is obviously a real estate podcast, but it's fun to like branch out because you know you can't talk about real estate all the time. So <laughs> Amber is the owner of Summit Dog Training. She is, was voted the number one dog trainer in Colorado. She's ranked nationally very high as well. Got on her website to look at her credentials, and I was like, okay, here we go. So she's got some some great knowledge to drop on us today. So um, welcome, Amber. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's funny. I usually ask people to podcast and they kind of get like deer in the headlights <laughs> and they're like, oh my gosh, I don't know if I could do it. I don't know what to say, <laughs> but it seems like you're an old pro and you were just like, sure, I love yeah. doing that. I, I can talk about dogs and business and anything else for quite a while without getting <laughs> getting tired of it. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, well, maybe we can start off just like I had an experience with a dog. Sure. Um, when my wife and I got married, we got two Catahoula leopard dogs. I don't know if you know what those are, <laughs> yeah. but um, the Pretty first intense. one, yeah, exactly. And it'd be fun to talk about kind of breed types sure. as well. Um, the first one was Lucy, and she was like an angel and one of those dogs that is almost human-like mm-hmm. in their ability to just know how to behave. You've ruined you for all other dogs to come. Right. <laughs> yes, we all have one of those in our lives, and then oh, no other dog can measure up. That's, that's so true. <laughs> And then the second dog, he started out great, you know, as he was a puppy. Mm-hmm. Uh, we lived in Austin at the time. We took him to dog parks. Yeah. And then we had one instance where, you know, you, dog parks, obviously, all the dogs are just going nuts. Yeah. And a, a big um, dog just bowled him over, didn't attack him, but he was, you know, just wasn't obviously showing very good manners. Yeah. And he got up and just freaked out, lashed onto the dog. I had to pry his jaws Oh, off the dog not fun <laughs> no. you know got bit in the process oh and then kind of ever since then um he just had this aggressive tendency and we got to the point where we really couldn't have him around other dogs sure. and you know this you have no idea like how much that can impact your life yeah. right because you've like, got friends with dogs absolutely. and um we, we really got isolating. to the point where we figured out we were isolating got to the point where we if we had a friend with a dog and we knew we, they, we wanted them to spend time together, we would have to kind of walk them sure. side by side, keep them apart, and he would be completely freaking out. And then 30, 45 minutes into the walk, yeah, he would start to calm down. So, Poor guy. Um, Sounds like he had some big stress feelings about those types of situations that really left an impact. Yeah. And it was interesting, too. We noticed that if he would get out of our backyard, he was a, kind of an escape artist. Um, he would find other dogs and be totally fine. So mm-hmm. we could tell that it was like probably our <laughs> sure. energy had a big em- impact yeah. on that. So, you know, fast forward now we're looking at, we got young kids and we're thinking, okay, maybe it's time to get another dog. Yeah. And I'm, I have like, you know, PTSD from that. Absolutely. There's so. a whole, um, a whole support group system, um, in the dog training industry for people we call them recovering reactive dog parents, uh, where you, you know, lived, lived your life in such a way to set yourself and your dog up for success with their particular behavior needs. And then, you know, they pass and you've, lived your life under those, uh, conditions for so long that then when you go and get the next family member, you, uh, have to do a little bit of work on yourself to prepare yourself for things to be different in order to not fall into the same patterns that then create similar behaviors. And I had to do it with my, uh, most recent puppy. Uh, my last dog was, uh, reactive to skateboards specifically the skateboards were a pretty big trigger for him and we worked on it through his life and he definitely improved but it was all right all, all um always something that i was concerned about especially living in a college area of fort collins and so then once he passed uh for the next even still to this day he's been gone for maybe three or four years now and uh, my partner will when we pass a skateboard <laughs> He will, my partner will turn to me and say, Amber, here's the treat <laughs> and as like a way to like kind of lighten the mood and, and condition positive feelings towards skateboards that we um, spent so much of our life with our last dog being stressed by um, in an effort to, to kind of change how the human feels about it. And it definitely takes a concerted effort to um, relax those brain muscles that have kept us safe for so long. 
It's true. So reactivity, that's kind of the term you use for that. And I think it's, it's so hard because that behavior seems so deeply ingrained in those mm-hmm. dogs. And yeah. it's so, you know, we, I can even like feel myself kind of tensing up and, yeah. you know, as I'm like <laughs> telling the story. Yep. Um, so what do you, you know, when people come to you with these kind of problems, what, where do you start? Sure. So first we start from a place of safety and management, uh, the dog and the person, everyone has to feel safe in the situations that they find themselves. And so we, if we're not starting from a place of safety, then we can't learn new skills, the human and the dog. So first we start by making sure that we have a good routine for navigating those situations that are unavoidable in the human and dog's life. So, uh, and deciding like, okay, what situations like maybe going to the dog park are things we need to set aside for now and not continue to put ourselves in those situations that have become dangerous. Um, and that was some dogs, that's a forever decision. Like this is just not the best place for them long-term. And for some dogs, it's a temporary decision. You know, let's, let's take a break. Let's reset. Let's build some better skills. And then maybe we can go back to those environments in the future. Mm-hmm. It really just depends on, on the dog in the case, um, and the human's goals for the dog as well. So first we have to set up kind of that safety plan. Um, and that, involves making sure the home environment is safe for the human and the dog together, making sure that leash walks are safe. So, um, things like, uh, identifying, uh, good safe spaces to walk where the human and the dog can feel safe. So maybe they walk previously, they've walked in a neighborhood where there's a lot of off-leash dogs running up to them and a lot of, uh, we call them triggers, a lot of places for the dog to practice, uh, behavior at a level where they don't feel safe those are situations that are going to just keep the unwanted behavior happening. So as part of our safety and management plan, we might say, all right, we're for the next month or two, we're going to take the dog, put them in the car, drive to a park where we can watch dogs at a football field away. Hmm. And we can work on building up calm and comfortable skills where the environment's a little bit more controllable um, than being in a tight neighborhood where you might get just surprised by a dog at any turn. Um, You can still get surprised at a park, but it's a little bit easier to say, hey, all the dogs are over there or there's one over there and we're going to set our distance and look for the behaviors that we do like in our dogs, which kind of leads to our second piece of the puzzle is then we start to teach better skills, teach the dog how to uh, use their behavior in a way that humans like to get what they need. So if we think about reactivity and aggression behaviors as reasons or things that the dog uses to feel safe in their world. So they use barking or lunging or snapping or starting a conflict as communication and how to get what they need out of that situation for different dogs that might be different things that they're looking for. But they've often learned that that's the only way to, to that they know of at their disposal to feel safe in that environment is to be big, loud, um, expressive behaviors, which don't fit very well in a human idea of a nice sociable dog. Um, and so we, our job then is to teach them that other behaviors work to get them similar outcomes to what they are using their aggressive and reactive behaviors for. So for many reactive and aggressive dogs, what they're actually looking for is space away from that scary thing. I'm scared about this dog running up at me or, or maybe bowling me over or whatever. And so I'm going to use my behavior, my loud behavior to get, get them to go away. And what we try to then teach our dogs is that they can use their quiet behavior to get that dog to go away or to get that scary skateboard to go away or that dump truck. Um, And those quiet behaviors can be several different things. The key pieces we usually start teaching our dogs are how to identify something in the environment and then check back in with their humans. So they tell the person about the scary thing in the environment with a quick glance at the scary thing and then a glance back at their human and say, Hey, did mom, dad, human in charge, did you see that scary dog over there? I'm telling you about it. And then I know that this means I'm going to get to move away or I'm going to get to go play over here with you, or I'm going to get a treat or whatever really makes the dog happy. Um, in that moment that we teach them in, in baby, baby steps that their calm composed behavior is going to get them very similar results, um, if not better results than their reactive behavior. Wow. Yeah. That seems 
just unbelievable that you can, you know, teach that kind of behavior to a dog. Yeah. It takes time. I'm not saying it's yeah. like a, Oh, we do this in a week and, and they're fixed. Right. Um, it takes time and careful curation of a training plan, um, and understanding what your dog is, what is driving your dogs, which could be something that's, you know, rooted in genetics in le- previous learning experience or just in the individual dog. Yeah. Uh, so we do have to dig into that a little bit on the individual case to understand what is our dog needing in this situation? What is driving this behavior and then do our best to help meet those needs. But as a result of behaviors that we like and are a little bit happier with. Hmm. So I would imagine it's a lot of management, right? There's probably not, you know, there's going to be certain dogs where you're just not going to be able to take them to the dog park. Absolutely. There are some dogs that just, that's not the best environment. And I would argue that some dogs just age out of that, enjoying that experience naturally Mm. because of the normal development of a dog. You have dogs that start off as puppies and very social and interested in playing and playing nonstop if you let them. And then as they mature and age and get to age two, three, four years old, they're going to be naturally choosing in a healthy dog. You're going to see naturally that they're choosing different behaviors. They're going to be more likely to want to nap or to just go and sniff or to play with their human. Um, and most, most dogs, there's certainly the exception of this don't continue to be so enthusiastic about massive group play, um, at the age of, you know, a mature age of four to eight years old as they did when they were six months to a year. And we see that change in humans too. Like I don't enjoy the same things as an adult that I did when I was in middle school because my tastes have changed and I'd much rather go for a side-by-side hike than to go to a birthday party with 30 of my classmates. (laughs) Um, And I think our dogs are similar, but we kind of just have as a society have this idea that the only type of dog socialization throughout the dog's life has to be like this group dynamic. Interesting. Um, I know my last dog later in his life would much prefer to go for a hike with two to three dog friends than to play in a group of 30 dogs. Right. Where you're all penned in and right. Not a lot of other options besides having, um, big feelings about each other. Do you think dog parks is kind of, I mean, is it a bad idea? Like on the whole, I have mixed feelings about it. I think there's uh, absolutely dogs that genuinely enjoy and benefit from their time there. And I am not, I think it's more of a gray thing, not a black and white thing. I think that we need to evaluate it on a case by case basis, whether our dogs are, um, are enjoying there. I also want to make sure if I am taking my dog there, it's not their only source of enrichment and activity, uh, because that can also build up some, uh, there's a lot riding on that dog park experience every day if that's their only outlet versus if they can go hiking and they can go on a walk with you and they can do training in your own backyard and then they can go to the dog park and then they can have a small group play with the neighbor's dog. Like there's a lot more variety and it's, we're not burning them out on just that one type of experience that can take a lot to manage. Um, so that's one aspect. And then I also usually see Dogs, even the gung-ho dog park dogs who are just naturals um, and really uh, competent at those social interactions, I usually see them as they enter maturity feel more like um, either shorter bursts or different types of activities. And if we keep trying to push them into the same activities they enjoyed when they were younger, that's when we can start to see some of those um, behaviors come out. I do also one last note on that think that our dog's experience at the dog park is largely tied to the other dogs that they encounter there. And so as someone who very much values control in curating my dog's experiences, I um, am usually going to go to the dog park at times that are less crowded, the rainy day, the, um, the colder temperatures, the Mm. like off times, not the 10 AM Saturday morning on a 65 degree day when they're, everyone's out, but the other times when the we're lowering, um, the elements outside of our control because we're picking lower traffic times. Wow. That's great advice. 
So you mentioned, and I know from your website, you guys talk a lot about like your adventure partner. Yes. Um, and I noticed you did a, a big backpacking trip this summer yeah. in the Maroon Bells <laughs> yes. with your, is it a Papillon? Or? A Papillon, yes. 10 pounds. Awesome, awesome little dog for backpacking. Um, and we had a, we had a blast. It was great. Uh, he is, uh, because he's so small, he doesn't have quite the stamina that my big dogs uh, have. And so he, we've taught him how to ride on our shoulders. Um, so he fits between kind of depending on how we have the pack situated, he kind of fits between my pack and my shoulders, um, and my neck, which it's not the best ergonomic backpacking position and it works way better going, um, downhill than uphill. So, uh, because we were doing the four pass loop in, in maroon bells, I would, um, encourage him to walk up the hills, which uh, on day three, he was like, Oh my gosh. Okay. One more pass. Um, but then I would carry, I would often carry him down the hills. And so we just kind of like picked our spots where I knew that he was going to have a little bit harder time or I was going to have a little bit harder time. And we switched off. He did walk a significant portion of the way. I don't want it to seem like we carried him all the way. He, he hiked like a pro, yeah. but we do have that extra little skill and advantage because he's only 10 pounds uh, to help him make it the whole uh, 27 miles. Right. That's awesome. It was great. It was really fun. So let's talk about off-leash yes. trail stuff. <laughs> I mean, obviously, it's kind of the quintessential dog experience to have yeah. your dog, you know, able to be off-leash and stay close and have you comfortable. And I think when you get to that point and you have places like that to go and we're Mm -hmm. blessed with a lot of national forest, um, for people that want to have that experience, what are kind of some tips? Cause I know so many people are doing off leash where they shouldn't be (laughs) and just kind of hoping they don't get caught. Absolutely. So first I'll talk a little bit about the, the, um, regulatory environment, let's say. So there's a lot of, uh, rules about where you can and can't have your dog off leash, typically in an effort to protect both your dog and wildlife in the area and the enjoyment of other hikers on the trail. And I'm a big proponent of both off leash time for dogs, but also for obeying leash laws where they exist. Um, typically and trying to find a balance there. Certainly there are some areas where, Um, we go where I will let my dog off leash uh, under certain conditions and there's other places where he stays off on leash the entire time, even though he has a, a a great off leash recall and system of, um, of skills. So you have to find that balance and we have to understand that those laws as inconvenient as they are do exist for a reason. Um, and we should do our very best to follow them, um, to the best of our ability. The, skills that our dog needs in order to to be successful in that environment are uh many but they are they boil down to our dogs need to be able to understand that checking in with us and staying close to us even when we haven't asked particularly cued them to Mm. do this um pays off and pays well i don't enjoy hiking with my dog if I have to constantly call them back to me. The dog doesn't like that. I get annoyed. Um, That's not the behavior I want for my dog. I want my dog just understanding that staying close and occasionally glancing back and looking at me and um, maybe running back to check in will often get rewarded. So I start off from a very young puppy just rewarding them anytime they offer to check in with me when we're out and about, when they're on leash, when they're off leash, anytime that they pick up their head and look at me, I'm going to pay them with a treat at first, or I might mix it up later on and say, you know, toss a toy or, um, release them to go run and go sniff and play, whatever my dog's, uh, reward structure that they most enjoy is. I'm going to be making, checking in with me, something that gives them the green light to go do what they want to do. And I do that extensively. Like if there's one thing that I over practice with my dog, it is teaching them that offering to look at me when I haven't cued them at all pays off. I also teach cues. Um, and I want them to know if I say, um, Jamie come, I don't want him to know what it means, but I care more about him volunteering that behavior. 
uh, as far as building just the expectation that he should default stay close to me. I also do quite a bit of work on a long line, um, 10 to 30 feet. Typically for a new dog, a young dog, I'm going to do a 10 to 15 foot line um, and then graduate to a longer line as my dog builds up their skills. And this is to give them a little bit of freedom, a little bit of ability to move away from me and then practice coming back without the chance to practice and get rewarded for racing off and chasing the squirrel or chasing the prairie dog or chasing the deer up the hill. If that behavior of running away from me and not coming back when I call them, that's it's such an easy behavior to accidentally allow to be reinforced. And so many people call me uh, with their seven, eight, nine month old puppy and say, what they've raced away from me on, you know, five hikes so far. And I've been searching for them for hours and they finally found them and they had the best time in the world. And now I want to teach them how to not do that. I'm like, well, your puppy has just practiced this quite a bit. And so we're going to need to really manage the situation and, and train up. It's a lot easier to, to start from a default of, nope, that doesn't get, that doesn't practice, get practice and rehearsed with Jamie. He had a great recall as a puppy and then he hit nine months old, which is a, um, in the middle of adolescence and a time when impulse control um, is not fully functioning in, uh, any species, but it's been, we see it in our dogs. So we have the limbic system part of the brain, which is charge of big feelings and, um, excitement, enthusiasm is in overdrive in adolescence. And then the prefrontal cortex, which is in charge of the self-control and the delayed gratification impulses and that's underdeveloped or not, not fully formed in adolescence. So we have adolescent dogs who have lots of enthusiasm and big feelings about everything and no self-control to go with it. Mm -hmm. And so at nine months old, we saw Jamie take off across the park field towards a dog friend. And that happened one time. And he went back on his long line for the next three months until he was through adolescence or through that phase of adolescence. And during that time, we worked a lot on seeing other dogs without racing over to them and doing a lot of those self-control pieces before I let him off leash again. And I only needed to see that behavior one time um, and know that I did not want that to happen or get reinforced again. Um, and now we're on the other side of adolescence again with a great recall um, because we were careful about managing and training through that phase you worked on that long line so if they spent three months on the long line they just get used to being close to you yeah it, it's that and we're also preventing him from like when he sees that dog friend and races over like we are he's not able to get to that dog friend and say yay this was the best decision i made all day to right. leave my human and go over so there we are one yes creating a situation where they get rewarded for staying close, but also preventing them from rehearsing the behavior we don't want. Mm. Um, and I think it's important to, to think about that as like an immediate decision rather than something that we let it go on. Like if I had over the, those next few months said, Oh, well that was a fluke next time we'll try again. And again, he raced over and got rewarded for playing with the, by playing with the dog friend. And then again, that's creating a much stronger behavior than, Oh, we did that once. We don't want that to do <laughs> to happen again. Let's go back to back a few steps in our training and rebuild this here. Huh? You mentioned accidental reinforcement. <laughs> and I know I did that all the time. Cause when the dog runs away, you know, and then they come back, you don't want to discipline them oh, for coming back. So <laughs> you're obviously going to reward them or do you do nothing or what do you do? So if my dog runs away from me or doesn't listen to a recall cue and then eventually does come back, I will still engage with them. I'm going to say good boy or thank you for coming back. I'm going to click on the leash and then I'm going to do some easy recalls right there on the leash and I might reward those with a treat. Um, I don't punish the dog for coming back, even if they have made a mistake before coming back. I want coming back to me always to be the right answer, even if it's delayed. But my most powerful reinforcement, like tossing the toy or tossing a treat only comes for coming back to me when I ask you to not for 
racing over and saying hi to the friend and then coming back. <laughs> um, and I, so, but I'm still going to acknowledge the dog and say, okay, thank you for coming back. <laughs> let's clip on your leash. And now let's practice some easy things that I feel good about reinforcing. Interesting. So they can probably differentiate between, Hey, I got my toy and well, mom is like, <laughs> you know, she's not disciplining me, Wait. but I came, she's not happy with me. Sure. You can get to the point where they can differentiate between that stuff. There's definitely a lot of um, human communication that they read probably more than we know and want to know. And um, I think if we are clear and consistent, they can certainly understand those um, differentiations. And ideally we're only seeing those mistakes a very small percentage of the time compared to the time when they do get that toy tossed or they do get that treat thrown. Mm -hmm. If we are seeing the mistakes happen more than the correct answers, then there's something that we need to workshop in our training or management plan because that's not the ratio that we want of the behavior. We may be asking our dog to do too much too soon, uh, or we might be, you know, setting up and practicing in an environment that is not conducive to their success. You know, a lot of my early recall work with dogs happens, you know, at a park where we see the, the other exciting dog friends, like way far away from us. And we practice coming away from them at that distance versus coming away from them at, you know, a two feet distance. Mm. Um, and then we work up from, from there. Mm. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. There's so many correlations now that I've got little kids just thinking <laughs> yes. about all this stuff. I'm like, man, I probably should, you know, come in for dog training and <laughs> so much of that could be applied to my yes. kids. There's actually a really good book, um, called, uh, treat everyone like a dog and it's written by a dog trainer, but a good portion of the, of the book is about her taking tr training, a good training principles and applying them to her human relationships, including raising her children. And it's, it's fascinating, um, to read and there's a lot of fun ideas in there. That's awesome. Yeah. It's interesting. You were talking about a variety of experiences for the dog. And I realized I really got into a rut of, I knew my dog needed exercise. Yeah. So just like fetch, fetch, fetch. Mm -hmm. Um, and actually both of my dogs ended up tearing their cruciate oh. ligaments and I, um, one of my buddies who's a vet tech at Chappelle was mentioning like, you know, that's kind of going to happen. What do you think yeah. about fetch? Is that just like a recipe for tearing ligaments? Yeah, um, I am. I, yes, there are certainly health um, implications there I, that are really uh, can be really damaging to the dog and the dog's long-term physical mm -hmm. ability because a cruciate ligament, even though there's, there's remedies for that, there's still um, long-term effects from, from that, even after repair, uh, I think there's also some behavior implications to fetch too. I am a big fan of cooperative, um, toy play with dogs and fetch is one element of, of that. But I, I again, think that it should be part of a dog's diverse exercise routine and not the only exercise routine. One of the things that I see behaviorally with dogs that are their, that their only outlet is fetch is that they have this kind of hyper arousal mm. around any sort of toy and not able to regulate their emotions and regulate their behavior. And it can just, it, it can be a lot of reinforcement just for being insane for, for to use the human, a uh, human label there. Um, you know, a lot of kind of hyper fixation on the ball, jumping, bouncing, um, a lot of intense repetitive exercise certainly doesn't lend itself to a dog that's like, okay, let's take a breather. Sure. Um, and especially for our high drive dogs, like our herding breeds, one of the very, very foundational things that we have to work very hard to teach them is how to turn off. Um, and if we're just creating adrenaline junkies through repetitive fetch over and over and over, then that is, is really hard to do. Now we can use fetch as a tool to teach our dogs, um, diff different self-regulation things. So one of the first things, if I'm going to be playing a lot of fetch with a dog is I'm going to teach them how to pause, lay down and take a breath and maybe relax and disengage from the ball for a minute as a way to get the ball to move again. Um, so teaching some, some pause and take a break cues is going to be important. Uh, I am also a big fan of diversifying the dog's exercise and it doesn't have to be complicated. 
things like nose work uh, in the backyard, sniffing for things, uh, like tossing your dog's kibble that they would get for breakfast or dinner into the backyard, into the grass so that they have to forage for it. <laughs> like super easy, not re- doesn't require a ton of extra routine sh- uh, mix up, but it gives your dog a chance to uh, sniff with duration, which lowers their pulse and heart rate. Very healthy thing for our dogs to do. Um, It also makes them move their body in a different way and provides that kind of hunting enrichment that so many of our suburban dogs just don't get on a daily basis. And I think diversifying with that, um, doing training of different kinds, working their brain, um, doing uh, walking and exercising in the mountains. Uh, we call it that decompression walks where the dogs on, on a long line and able to move freely. And the activity is just walk and sniff and, uh, move at their own pace. Those type of activities, I think, uh, really are important to creating a dog that's able to regulate their, their own, uh, intensity wow. rather than like fetch, I think just enables our herding breed dogs to just become those kind of adrenaline junkies that yeah. are hard to live with. That's fascinating. I was watching your videos and I, one thing I didn't kind of understand yeah. when I, w- when I was a dog owner is how enriching that those training sessions are. Mm-hmm. It's like, they're going to school, but <laughs> they're just like wildly engaged having yeah. the best time ever. And I think you know, like I said, I got into a rut of fetch and next time I really want to just use that. Just think about, Hey, we don't always have to just go for a run or go fetch. Like, you know, we can do stuff just right in the backyard. That's really stimulating. for Absolutely. And I think that it's, uh, so cool to see how humans and dogs can create those relationships with each other to based on silly tricks, (laughs) like things that don't really necessarily even have to have a, um, impact on the life, like teaching a recall skill is a pretty high stakes skill, but teaching just, you know, give high five or spin or, um, you know, touch your nose to my hand or roll over. Those things may seem like silly and not really meaningful, but they're so valuable to the dog as ways for the dog to, um, engage with you in their environment that you like. And the more opportunities they have to get reinforcement, and your attention can be be part of that reinforcement. But the more opportunities they have to get your your attention, reinforcement from you for behaviors that you like, the more that they will choose those behaviors instead of some of the other like problematic behaviors. Uh, and we can do that in focus training sessions. We can also just do that kind of throughout our, our dog's normal life. With Jamie, when I uh, first brought him home, he is a a small breed and sometimes, uh, papillons can be a little bit barky, um, and like bark for attention or bark to be let out. And I knew that wasn't really a behavior that I wanted to encourage. Um, he wasn't super barky as a puppy. I knew that, but I didn't want that to develop as one of the behaviors that he used mainly to get what he needed. And so I just kind of watched him. We, we did a lot of training. We looked for, um, different things that he liked to do to get my attention. But one of the things he started offering as a puppy was he would lay on his back and have his, his feet up in his air and they, he'd just kick them, like extend them out in both directions. And I could tell he was doing this to, uh, you know, get something out of the environment. And so Charlie and I started, um, when he would do that, we'd make a big fuss over him. Like, Oh my gosh, you're so cute. Look at you like belly rubs, this and that. And I started reinforcing this on purpose. So anytime he laid on his back and started kicking his feet, I would stop whatever I was doing and come over and give him a belly rub. Mm. And this made it so that that was his way he could ask for attention. He didn't need to bark at me for attention he could lay and kick. Now it didn't make it obnoxious where he was like, Oh, I need this all the time. But he had a way to ask for attention that I approved of. Um, and that was just something we created by, I noticed what he was doing and I said, okay, I, I don't hate that. That's pretty cute. I will reward that when that happens so that it happens more often and gives him a tool to interact with me. That's awesome. Yeah. So correction, like, Let's talk about correction. Sure. So my view on correction in dog training is that it is 
uh, typically not needed to help our dogs understand how to exist in our world. I am a big fan of setting boundaries with our dogs, and that could certainly fall under that label, but I'm typically going to set boundaries in a way that says, no, not that, do this instead. So I'm usually going to be giving the dog a direction on what I want them to be doing when I tell them, no, don't do something. So if, if, um, let's say the puppy is chewing up the sofa. Um, I'm going to say, nope, not that. We're not going to do that. I'm going to interrupt. Um, and I teach an interruption cue where um, if I say, hey, pup, or no, I say their name, you can pick whatever word feels comfortable to you. And when they look up at you, I'll say, yay, good job. And I'll ask them to do something else instead. I think our dogs exist uh, don't they don't exist in a human world where they know exactly what we expect and we have to show them. So mm. when we are telling them no on something, I really want to make sure we're also providing them an option for what they should be doing in that moment. Uh, and I think that helps set the most uh, clear path for them to choose that preferred thing in the future, because we don't want to just go through our lives having to correct our dogs every time they make uh, like keep tapping the rudder and hoping they end up going the right direction. We actually just want them to go the right direction. Mm. Uh, and so if we show them like, this is the direction I want you to go. Then when they deviate a little bit, we say, no, no, not that. Sorry, bud. This is remember this. Uh, and it's a lot easier than just kind of playing, um, hot and cold, like warmer, warmer, warmer until they finally arrive at the right answer. I know, um, that us as humans also benefit from like clear instructions, clear, like, this is what you want me to do rather than someone coming along saying, Nope, don't do it that way. And then we're like, okay. They're like, Nope, don't do it that way either. Okay. Well, someone kept teaching us like that. Eventually we just sit there and be like, well, (laughs) what do you want me to do? I don't, I don't (laughs) like, I'm just gonna, nothing is the answer. right? Right. Uh, so I do think that we can, um, we can set boundaries with our dogs and we don't have to just let them be maniacs and do whatever they want, but we should do it with a, a mind of like, how do we help them find and un- clearly understand what is expected of them? Yeah. yeah. So I remember like Caesar Milan was what at <laughs> oh the time gosh. when we were doing our, you know, we yep. were like, Oh my gosh, we got to find something. It was before yep. I knew you. Yep. I mean, he would, I think he would like shush yeah. the dog. Do you have anything like that? Or are you really just kind of redirecting <laughs> all the time? Caesar Milan is a lot of mirrors and smoke. Okay. <laughs> and uh, his training is just, it, it's good dog training does not make good TV. Okay. Let's say that. <laughs> is he still on the air? I don't even I know. I don't think he is. Okay. Um, he, I think he might have his own like side project. I, I don't keep up with it, honestly, sure. because it's just so far from good training that it's not. Yeah. Um, it takes a lot of brain energy to to dissect it okay. because it it's just not it's just not good. Yeah. No, um, there. So some of the there's of course there's a little bit of truth in every uh, every myth, right? So right. like some of the things that he talks about, like you need to exercise your dog. <laughs> yes, you do. <laughs> there's Obviously. there's some good things in there, uh, but I do think that he is a lot of the methods that he provides are not safely replicable for the average pet owner Mm. and they're not in the best interest of the dog. Um, and there's a lot of behind the scenes videos of him doing even shadier stuff than gets on the air and him, there's this, uh, video of him getting bitten three times by this dog. (laughs) Um, it's on YouTube and it's been broken down by lots of trainers and like, it's like, I don't know, a five, 10 minute clip. And he ignores so many warning signals that the dog is clearly giving that says, I'm uncomfortable. I please move away. Hmm. I am nervous about you coming in. Please move away. He keeps pushing. He keeps pushing until the dog is backed into a corner and has exhausted all of the other communication methods Hmm. and has no other option but to bite him. Yeah. And this is then labeled as an aggressive dog. But if you watch the video, you see that this is a dog that is desperately trying to get away from this scary human and is communicating in every other way possible to that dog until finally they have no other option. And to me, that's not good training. 
that's sure. like that's really not healthy to the dog. It's not fair to put humans in that situation where they feel like now this is what they have to go and do to their scared rescue dog or scared dog in order to make a breakthrough. Um, and then everyone ends up way worse off. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um, and also do you have like a time limit? Do you need to be out of here? No. Okay. Um, cause obviously we got, we got <laughs> we a lot more we can talk about. I just have, a, I guess, a parking time limit. Oh, yeah. Okay. So you're, we got to get, I get, get an you hour. out of here at five. Yeah. How about gentle leaders? What do you think about those? I think when they're properly conditioned, um, and by that I mean the dog is taught how to wear them comfortably. I don't have a problem with them in, um, in situations where that is needed. Okay. I think with, I'm a, with any equipment, um, there are, maybe any is too strong, but there are certainly situations where I try to be open with my clients coming to me where they are using equipment that helps them feel safe walking their dog. And even if it's not equipment that I would like to be on my dog, I um, really try to help those clients in a non-judgmental way that says you're using this tool, whatever that is, to feel safe walking your dog. How can we continue to help you feel even safer walking your dog? Maybe to the point that you feel like you don't need this tool anymore, or maybe that is a long-term part of your work with your dog, but you have all of these other tools at your disposal, so it's minimally impacting your dog's enjoyment. Uh, so that's kind of the philosophy I take on, on that. The tools that I typically will encourage my clients to use are a front clip harness or a collar or, or and or a collar. Um, and the front clip harness should be properly fitted and made sure that it's not inhibiting the dog's movement and that it's, um, it's as safe and comfortable for them to wear. I do, uh, use the gentle leaders for situations where like the dog is 150 pounds and the human is 120 pounds, like physics, sure. we gotta, sure. um, we gotta help them out there, but we're going to use it in conjunction with training. No tool that I put on the dog is going to be a replacement for teaching the dog better leash skills. It's only, um, to help enable the human to feel safe as they're walking their dog. Sure. So I don't know how to frame this question. Cause if I ask you like, what do a lot of people get wrong about their <laughs> dogs? Like the list is just endless. Yeah. Um, but I'll just kind of ask it anyway, or like, you know, for the, for a person like me that, you know, is, is about to get a dog mm -hmm. like, and I'm coming to you. And of yeah. course I've had so much help um, from coaching, you know, right. in my business yep. that I believe in it so much. And so I'm sure that we will, you know, employ, <laughs> um, your services at some point, but, you know, just kind of open-ended question, like what do people get wrong and yeah. how can they get it right? So I think with puppies specifically, the, the biggest pitfall that I see is, um, puppies need a ton of sleep. And often when we get puppies, we are immediately think, you know what, I got to get them out. I got to go to every, so I got to socialize in every environment, every brewery, every um, training class, every dog friendly store. We're going like nonstop. And we then get to the end of the day and the puppy is uh, going wild and crazy and they're playing with the kids and they're, um, you know, racing around the house and they're playing with the other dog and they're just having the time of their life. And usually at that point, a tired puppy is not the best behaved puppy. And we are going to see more biting and chewing and problematic behaviors come out because the puppy is just exhausted. And so one of my first things, usually when I have a puppy, new puppy owner who's come to me being like, this is a maniac puppy and I don't know what's wrong with them, is I will ask how often, how much are they sleeping every day? And usually the answer is like, well, like we're trying to like keep them awake because everybody wants them to sleep through the night, right? Just like, mm -hmm. uh, human babies probably like you want the, to keep the, um, the daytime naps such that we get a solid night's sleep, but without naps throughout the day, the puppy is running on an empty tank and is, um, not only more likely to be more nippy and bitey, but also more likely to be nervous about new things that they're encountering. So the socialization experiences that they might be having may not be quality, for experiences for the puppy because they don't have the sleep reserves 
built up huh. to have a quality experience. Interesting. Yeah. So I think sleep is really important. It's usually with our older dogs, especially if we've set the tone well as puppies, that sleep is a good thing. Um, they're a little bit easier to just say, yeah, okay, it's time for a nap. I'm going to lay down and, and help myself. Puppies often don't have the ability to help themselves into a nap time situation. Um, so that's one thing that's, I think, often missed. I think the other thing that just kind of applies more generally is thinking about behavior that the dog is doing. Behavior is always functional for the dog. The dog's not doing whatever problematic behavior they're doing for no reason. They are doing it to get something that they need out of their environment or their life. So whether that is barking at the neighbor when the neighbor pulls up or barking at the mailman when the mailman walks up to the house and that's a a problematic behavior or they are, um, you know, sneaking off into the pantry and stealing a cereal box and chewing it up when you're at work Um, or they are barking at the dog that they see on the walk. Like any of those problematic behaviors, they seem like the dog is just doing this to vex us and to be like be um, a nuisance or whatever. But in reality, those behaviors are connected to something that is an unmet, unmet need in the dog's part. And so one of the foundation pieces of breaking that down and finding the solutions there is figuring out, like, what is the dog getting out of this behavior? And how can we either manage the environment so that they don't need to do this? Um, or how can we train a better behavior? Wow. That's fascinating. Yeah. Um. Well, maybe we'll transition a little bit. Sure. Um, I, you know, I've watched you go from, I think with the first time we met, you were pretty much solo yeah. dog trainer. Mm-hmm. And now you have this business that's grown very mm-hmm. significantly. You've got, I think, six or seven employees. Yeah. And um, talk to me about that. I mean, it's, I know it's, an, it's a big progression it, <laughs> yeah. and there's a lot of trial and error. And, <laughs> it has... Um... Every year I think, okay, this is going to be a status quo year. And then it just, it doesn't happen. And we grow, (laughs) we grow again. And certainly there have been some ups and ups and downs, uh, with different phases uh, of the business and it's, but it's just been such a, a cool thing to see it continue to, to grow, to meet the needs of, of dog owners in the Northern Colorado area and beyond. We have a, an online branch of our business as well that works with students around the country. And yeah, it's just been quite the journey. I think the biggest shift for me this past year, I think starting in um, June last year, I gave myself a promotion and I uh, um, kind of, it was just a mental promotion, but changed uh, previously up to that point. So uh, the first seven years of the business, more or less, I had been you know, wearing all the hats, owner, dog trainer, uh, bookkeeper, like everything. And gradually I've been kind of passing off some of those hats, you know, hiring an accountant a few years ago to do payroll and stuff instead of doing it myself. Great decision. Um, (laughs) contracting out some social media stuff, also great decision, but I was still up through last year, like doing teaching like 20 hours a week, 25 hours a week, and then managing the business on top of that, which is its own full-time job. And so last June, I took myself off the the schedule for new clients. Um, I gave myself a promotion to CEO instead of just owner, um, which has really kind of helped with a mindset mindset shift, like nothing changed on paper, (laughs) just a mindset shift. Like my job now uh, eight years into this is to, it's okay if I'm not the one actually training dogs day in and day out. And I still do, um, about now about like eight to 10 hours of training instead of 25. So it's still a lot, but it is, um, has been a mindset shift to allow myself to say like, I can spend my time on, on thinking bigger and hiring and equipping my team to help more people. And that's going to help us be sustainable rather than um, me trying to do it all myself. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's so hard to, I mean, really finding those people and trusting them Absolutely. is the biggest thing. Cause that, you know, thinking that you're the best in the world at what you do and you may or may not be, but right. 
you know, finding somebody else that's going to take care of those client relationships. Of course. That's, that's why so many people thing. stay owner operators forever. Yeah. Because you want that control. Yeah. And I'm a big, big proponent of that, but also that you can't grow if you're not willing to equip other people. And sometimes I've, I've learned through like hiring people and training people, it can feel like it's so much, takes so much longer to train someone else to do the thing that you do so well, but ultimately you have to make that investment in order to continue to grow and to continue to like be able to expand your reach. If you don't take the time to do that, then you're just going to be doing it yourself all the time, which there's nothing wrong with that. Um, I wanted something like bigger for summit. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately you're going to be able to reach a lot more people, you know, if you train a team and, Mm -hmm. Um, you're not going to get burnt out and, you know, the dream is that you can, you know, build something that does what you do and you're not always having to do all the things. And, um, I'm working with a coach right now that talks about your zone of genius. She's like, what do you want to be doing every day, all day? And I was like, wow, that's, you know, such a fun thing to think about. (laughs) It's Um, so hard to carve out that time. Um, I, I'm working on that, you know, every day working on like, what is, I just actually this past week split my to-do list into CEO items and non-CEO items. And with the objective that over the next few weeks, I can train other members of my team, how to complete all of the non-CEO items on my to-do list. So that instead of me just continuing to every month say, okay, I'm going to do this same task, you know, every month that I need, needs to get done. Like, how can I spend, you know, that time, you know, once or twice and train, train one of my team members to take that list so that eventually I'm left with the CEO to do list. Yeah. And that it's, it's, which is hopefully more in line with my zone of genius goals. Right. right. Yeah. Just being in that place that, you know, you think not only is this the best thing for the company, but this is what I enjoy doing the most. And I have struggled with that because I'm, I'm basically in a very similar position mm-hmm. to where you are now. I'm um, starting that transition and I'm hiring full-time people yeah. and I'm trying to figure out what I want to be doing, mm-hmm. but there's still a part of me that misses the work, Yes, you know? Yes. And I, I also, and I don't know, this could be just my mind playing tricks on me, but I feel like if I stop doing the work, I'm not going to be as sharp because I still have (laughs) all my people asking me situational advice. And um, if I don't know the market, Mm -hmm. I'm not in it day in and day out, then am I going to be able to give them the best advice? Absolutely. I think that that's probably a lie that we tell ourselves, but it also is definitely something I can relate to. I've often felt like I can either be an expert business owner or an expert dog trainer, and I can't be both. (laughs) Right. Um, And I, I don't think that's true, but I do think that there are some trade-offs, Yeah. right? You can, um, I, in our industry, there's a lot of fantastic expert dog trainers who like are revered and, uh, in the industry put out awesome education and you go to their business website and you're like, this is terrible. <laughs> and then there's like a ton of really markety, um, like professionally marketed dog training business. And you like dig into their training and their methods and their reviews. And you're like, this is not a great company. It just is very flashy. Yeah. And so like, how do you, how do you tow that line in oh. the middle and be both things at the same time? Um, I think that, I think it's a challenge as a tightrope. I think it's possible. You just have to be mindful of like, there's the two, there's the pitfalls on either side. Yeah. Um, and I think being aware of it is probably the, the biggest thing I've identified as far as, you know, striking that balance is like continuing to tap the rudder in, in the center direction. Right. And also let, I guess, letting things go <laughs> that aren't important to being either of those um, being experts or, uh, in either of those ways, like just letting go of other things. Yeah. I mean, there's some, you know, you've got that to do list. Like I have where there's just, I'm like, I'm just going to delete this cause it's been on there for so yes. long. It must not be that <laughs> right. important. So I have to get better about that yeah. because otherwise my to-do list ends up like uh, three pages long and right. the things at the bottom are never going to make it to the top. 
it's such a long process, you yeah. know, and I, and there's some, there's, and there's all these stories about the, you know, the businesses that get, I need to stop paying attention to like anything Silicon Valley where they're getting <laughs> like funding. Cause it seems like things happen so much yeah. faster. I don't think that's necessarily true because there's a lot you don't see, mm-hmm. but I've had to get comfortable with the fact that I'm happy just making progress today. Yeah. You know, because it's a long, and I also have noticed that when I've set goals and then reached those goals, Mm -hmm. the reaching the goal is not this glorious thing (laughs) that you thought it was be, was going to be. And my theory is because it, you kind of inch closer to it every day. Mm -hmm. And then at some point you're like, Oh yeah, we're going to get to that goal. (laughs) Like we're going to hit that goal. It's not like anybody's throwing you a party and sometimes I don't even notice, you know? You got to throw yourself a party. You got to throw yourself a party. I'm really bad at celebrating those accomplishments, (laughs) but you know, I've got to be happy. And I think human beings are happiest when we're just making that little bit of progress Mm -hmm. and not getting so fixated on those goals. Cause I notice if I set a really big goal and I start to just focus on the goal and it's, it's this audacious thing that'll, I'll psych myself out. You know, I just don't think I'll ever get there and I'll spend, I might spend like, most of the day worrying about whether I'm ever going to get there and not doing the actual work yeah, that I need to do I today. I totally relate to that. I have this online class that I've um, been invited to teach in the classes in June and it's with a national training um, academy, really, really big deal. Like something I've wanted for a while and I, I've signed the contract, I'm teaching it and now I got to write the class. <laughs> <laughs> and I have all these ideas and I have pages and pages of notes and they somehow need to work themselves from the like pages and pages of notes into a, a teachable format. And I am also fighting some of those same things of like, how do I sit down today and make a little bit of progress on this? Um, even though I'm not going to get to this full, um, you know, 12 hours of content class today. Yeah how do I like chip away at it and, and work to get there? Yeah. And that just takes a little bit of, I think grit and determination. Yes. But also breaking down that big task into bite-sized pieces that I can sit down and work on and, and feel like an hour or two hours is well spent because it checked off one slice of this. Right. And I always want big blocks of time, like two, I want two hours if I'm going to work on something, but I realize like, I don't have two hours, no. you know, I have 30 and I should be better at time blocking, but then like, you know, a new client calls mm-hmm. and I'm like, I can't, you know, ignore wait this five hours to call this person back. Right. Um, and so those just learning to grab those little chunks of yes. time when I have them, you know, but it's easier said than done. Yeah, absolutely. And Praise I notice myself procrastinating, you know, because I'm just like, man, I just spent 30 minutes doing something that I shouldn't be doing and I could have made progress. So absolutely. It's much easier to check off those like little five minute tasks and then those, you know, 10, five minute tasks takes up the whole hour and you've, yeah, I've accomplished five things versus I worked on one harder thing for an hour yeah. and I didn't even finish it yeah. <laughs> because I needed more time than that. Um, but I think that you have to get, I know I have to get out of my head on that and just be like, let's, let's sit down and, and get into it for the time that we have. Yeah. Well, it seems like you guys have got a great kind of critical mass. I I saw a hundred and some five-star reviews on Google and that has kind of a a special meaning to me because I know how hard that is, you know, and how few people write reviews. Yes. Um, even if they've had an incredible experience Absolutely. with you and they say, I'm going to write you a review, yes. <laughs> um, you know, God bless the people that actually do. Right. Um, and it's just a wonderful feeling, but I, you know, that's, that's a huge accomplishment it is. and it, it is. speaks to, and there's so many, you know, we spend like a huge amount of time on the website and all the content that we make and it, it all helps, but there's so many people and I ask them, how'd you hear about us? And they're like, oh, I just read the reviews. I'm like, well, did you, surely you went to the website and like <laughs> watch them? No, I just read reviews and I pressed the call button. Yep. I'm like, okay. All right. Great. You know? <laughs> if, if it works for you, yeah. if that's how, you, right. how it goes, like picking a restaurant, you don't always go to the, the website, but if, true. if people said they like it, great, I guess. Yeah. I'll give it a try. Um, yeah. We definitely love our student to go out of their way to write us a, a few notes. And I, 
I think it's really cool if you look at the reviews, like and going back several years, like early on, there most of them are my students. So like working with Amber, Amber, and then more recently, like all of my team members are are mentioned in reviews, and that just makes me so happy. Is uh, and I think that's an important aspect of being in a, a a service provider that brings other people into your business is being not just trusting other people, but all uh, to carry on your service, but also being excited when they get, when they're successful and um, not being like covetous of all of the, the accolades yourself, but sharing them right. with other people who a lot of our students haven't even met me in person, which is great. <laughs> That's awesome. awesome. Yeah. That means you're doing something right. Have you guys had to do uh, quite a bit of marketing or have you just kind of existed on word of mouth and referrals? The past couple of years has been mostly word of mouth and referrals, um, Google. We do um, some marketing with our like vet referral partners and um, Animal Friends Alliance. We support them through their BizPaw program and um, a few other local rescues. We do some like flyer drop off at different locations around town, but really a lot of our, a lot of our students are, um, referrals, uh, Facebook groups that are Fort Collins dog related, you know, people post questions at looking for trainers. And, uh, so many of our students are in that group and tag us, uh, there, which is really awesome. And, um, other places like Reddit and, uh, next door also get, give us shout outs, uh, which is which is really great. I think a referral from someone you know or someone in a um, group that you're engaged in is really the highest quality of uh, of a marketing push. Hundred percent. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. Well, Amber, you've been super generous with your time and dropped tons of amazing knowledge on us, <laughs> and I uh, just can't thank you enough for yeah. being here. So appreciate Absolutely. it. Where can people find you? Yeah, we're online at summitdogtraining.com on Facebook and Instagram at Summit Dog Training, and uh, our admin team is super responsive. So if people have questions and they reach out uh, to to us via the contact methods uh, on our website, our admin team is rock star and they will get back to you and get you support you need. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me.